Hello and welcome to the Doghouse. So on the 3rd of August, Sri Lanka's President Ranil Wickremesinghe delivered his policy statement to the third session of the ninth parliament of Sri Lanka. Uh, and in this policy statement, he went on about the need for all political parties to come together and for everyone to work together to get the country out of the multiple crises that they're in. We wanted to focus more on the economics or the economic side of the president, of president, I beg your pardon, Yudha, Yudha and Umesh, I keep uh, mixing up president and prime minister, you know, Ranil Wickremesinghe has been prime minister so many times. It's uh, fine. I think, it's fine. I think my brain we... cannot no. compute the fact that he's now president. No, I, 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 we, I we've, same issue. Same issue. We've had so many president, prime minister <laughs> switches in the, in the past, you know, just so many months that yeah. I don't think anybody in Sri Lanka mentally has brought Ranil out of the prime minister category, except for Ranil himself, which is dangerous. So, uh, so we're joined in the doghouse today. Yuda and I are joined by our resident economist, Umesh Muramuduli, uh, who's been doing a lot of research into Sri Lanka's debt situation. Uh, we've seen our reporting on like the uh, Sri Lanka's pathway to the uh, Sri Lanka's road to the IMF rather. So the reason we have Umesh on the, on the show today is because we want to talk about the economic targets that uh, President Ranil Wickremesinghe has sort of laid out in his uh, policy statement. So among the key sort of economic targets that he's laid out, one is to achieve a primary budget surplus by the year 2025 to reduce the debt to GDP ratio currently at 140% to 100% by 2032. And for Sri Lanka to become a developed nation by the time we reach uh, the centenary of independence in 2048. Uh, so Yudha, feel free to chime in with your questions as well. Uh, but Umesh, you're in the hot seat, in the spotlight. What were your takeaways from the president's policy statement? Well, I mean, to begin with, that's a that's fairly a broad statement, except with except for a few targets that yes, that you already mentioned. So there's one target to say that the to GDP ratio will be brought down to 100% in 2032 in another 10 years and in 2025 we will have a primary surplus and other than that we don't really see any other targets being set up or targets being talked about in this speech targets when I say targets not only numbers I'm also referring to the other actions we will be doing X thing by this particular year or even to say that we will be bringing in the interim budget on this particular day or in this particular month um, and we will be bringing in tax laws and uh, fixing the tax issues by this year this month or at least give a timeline so that didn't really i didn't see that that aspect in the speech speech is fairly broad speech uh, where he says where he outlines some of the issues in the economy basically how we got here i mean it's for me it was it, it felt like um, reading back one of our obvious. yes, stating the obvious, uh, which we already know. Uh, that so we let are me uh, let me see if I understood this correctly. Our debt to G GDP ratio is projected to come to hundred percent by twenty thirty two. Yes, yes, correct. Ten years from now, so we're looking at a decade of, I mean, really a decade of this being this economy being the shit show that it is right now. I mean, it is, uh, the debt situation is really bad. 
um, and this uh, we, we our, our debt to GDP ratio number is 140 percent right so this is a really bad number and not to mention that we our revenue is really really low which means that we would also have to borrow in going forward so coming uh, bringing down the debt to GDP ratio to 100 percent is I would I, I categorize that as a realistic estimate I wouldn't go on and criticize about it although I have criticisms on other fronts so it will take that amount of time because one is we have to be realistic I my my understanding or like my reading is that Ranil took this number from the debt sustainability plan that we are supposed to present to the IMF so this plan has to be realistic this is not like one of our budget speeches where you come and say hey we will bring down the budget deficit to 2%, 3% in another 3 years, we will increase the revenue to 15 16% whereas actually your revenue is 10 or 11%. So you can't bullshit when you present this um, debt sustainability plan to IMF. Well, so, why, so why I'm asking is because as sort of even minimal bullshit as, they plans, as these plans tend to be, there's still an element of wishful thinking of course because you can't plan for what we think of as outlier events, black swans, uh, like for example the series of events that has been happening this year. Uh, massive instability, so you, even the 2032 is sort of the statistically predictable best guess I'm, I'm assuming and that we're not really accounting for the fact that it could go much worse in those 10 years? Well, yes, in a way, yes, because um, a lot of things could happen that we didn't see COVID coming. We didn't really see the Russian-Ukraine war. We, we exactly. don't know whether there'll be a China-Taiwan war in another five years, which would again, you know, have a global economic recession or a meltdown. Exactly. And you, and you can't plan for these, right? So when we, we can't say, plan for this. Yeah, when we say like 2032, that's 2032, assuming things go as planned. Yes. So this this is actually, as I said, I think my reading is that this part of the debt sustainability plan that we are supposed to present to the IMF. So that is an essential component of Sri Lanka getting into an staff level agreement with IMF. So they IMF also exclude the black swan events and all these things, assuming that okay things go as planned, assuming that Sri Lanka doesn't do anything wrong, that they should be able to bring down this 200 percent by 232 i think that's a fairly uh, okay estimate for that but the the question is how are you going to get there now there's nothing in the speech about how are you going to get there because to, for you to get there from where you are right now you need you need more tax you need to cut expenditure you also need to privatize or sell um, lease whatever you may call it some state assets and then you need to increase exports it's all and you need to maintain a fairly uh, good exchange rate so all of these things has to come together and unless those things comes together and it's not going to be possible so that plan needs to be laid out uh, fairly soon and i think umesh one of the key things when i was listening to the speech uh, on the third and when what what i wanted to hear or at least uh, I'm not sure if this is very true for the rest of our listeners because we've been covering this, let's call it, let's call it what it is, a shit show for some time now and we know what the problems are so we didn't want the president telling us what the problems are. What we really wanted was, okay, these are your targets but 
where is the plan to achieve these targets uh, as far as policy statements go do you think that there was uh, from your point of view as a development economist did you think that there was sufficient specificity uh, specificity or you know or sufficient detail in how he plans to achieve these targets well, well not really nadeem i mean um, there there were certain hints had uh, given hints to say okay this is the direction that i am going that i intend to go but there's no specific activities that he outlines for example he mentioned about the investment fasses about sri lankans do not welcome foreign investors true i mean that, that's a fairly again a uh, stating obvious but he doesn't say okay what what is he going to do about it is he going to implement a single window or is he going to reform the boi what is going to happen to the port city commission bill how how are you going to reform this whatever the laws or regulations whatever the obstacles that are there to attract investments what are, how are you going to do that as not a single and, thing about it and he didn't talk about uh, something that i like i mean a lot of the pe- people at the protests also even those who were there for economic purposes were calling for an end to corruption and uh, we see even with a lot of uh, i mean these aren't really investments but tenders involving foreign companies as well in the past we've seen uh, they've been rife with allegations of corruption uh, so for one of the things that you also look at is what kind of investment that are you looking at attracting right because when under the previous yahapalne administration when ranil wickremesinghe was prime minister i recall there were a lot of questions being asked about the mirijavila oil refinery project where a former Uh, a Tamil Nadu politician, uh, a state-level politician from India, had set up this investment vehicle in Singapore called Silver Park International, and they were going to, uh, in a joint venture with the government of Oman, set up this uh, refinery in the south, in Mirijavila, Hambantota. And there were a lot of questions about, okay, what is the legitimacy of this investment? So, uh, from my point of view, as having worked as an anti corruption activist as well is what why is this a plan do you plan to attract these if this your if do you plan to meet your fdi targets to what we call bona fide investment or are you willing to take investment from anywhere no i mean you are you are absolutely right you are spot on there because our problem has been the way we used to attract investment is you know you know the under you know cutting a deal with one or two investors giving them enormous tax concessions promising them the sun moon and the mars saying that we'll give this and that or the other so that they will come or one person involved in that deal will get a commission or two and then uh, somehow manage to do it but this is not the way that we should go forward because this essentially something that we've talked on the show for many times is promote rent seeking and rent seeking mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why we are here whether the investor is foreign or local that doesn't make the difference for the corruption or for the rent seeking activity that the fact that it is wrong and fact that it will uh, cause troubles for the economy in the years to come uh, that is inevitable right so so your investment attracting investment shouldn't be based on uh, uh, that behavior you should have a much more uh, transparent mechanism this is where what i mentioned you know streamlining processes uh, having much more open uh, you know competitive bidding all these things comes into play in this uh, context and if you are not doing that that means you will you will fall into the same pit 
because you'll get investment for one or two years when those investors you know ran out of money or whatever and you're not going to get other investments because people will think that the global investment community or the business community will think that uh, hi i mean these guys uh, facilitate this niche of investment if you are not adhering to that or if you are not if i'm not going down that road it would be difficult to uh, invest in sri lanka because instead what you need to do is fix the structural issues in the sense that make it very easy for the investors to come and invest here make it very easy for them to come and work here make sure that the business is facilitated whether it's indian chinese uk us uh, wherever whatever the business and uh, whatever the businesses that wants to operate in sri lanka make it easy for them right so, so that umesh the, the yeah the counter argument to sort of the position that you've articulated is that uh, if you look at uh, i mean if you strip ideals and values away and you look at it from a pure sort of numbers perspective Uh, you recall we did this with our like corruption overview uh, uh, data project as well. Uh, when we were looking through data f- through like the reports of the Tax Justice Network and comparing them with Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index, uh, even if you look the now discontinued World Bank's Ease of Doing Business Index, a lot of the countries that feature very highly in uh, or TIs like they're ranked amongst the least corrupt countries as as in so far as public perceptions of public sector corruption go or if you look at the world bank's formerly ease of doing business index a lot of the countries that rank very highly for ease of doing business they also rank highly as havens as tax as offshore tax havens Uh, yes. and that with allegations of corruption money laundering terrorism financing and i mean this know, is this is your united you know, arab emirates your singapore I, i mean i have to del- say here i do also question the data because mm. i this is the point that we were we were conversing about while building that uh, that page right like mm. these indices are built on surveys among business populations and of course uh, you know a businessman uh, a business person who is just looking at how easy is it to move money from point x to point y is not necessarily thinking about what does our economy look like am i contributing to society uh what do our social security nets look like it's can i make this transaction without too many bureaucratic steps in the way and that's sort of remarkably similar to what you might be thinking if you're a money launderer um, yeah it's not to call businessmen money launderers but i'm pointing out that those the ease of some of those ease of doing business in indices are not necessarily a good metric of yeah. uh, of like the actual economic stability of a country yeah. purely because those surveys don't capture that type of data absolutely so which the question that then arises is that and i've seen a lot of people like uh, people in business in sri lanka people in sort of positions if you follow like the discussions that are had on various whatsapp groups they're like you know forget about all these high minded ideals and adhering to all of these uh, best practices because in reality but in their opinion again now we're drifting from numbers to opinion in their opinion this doesn't really matter and for a country in crisis like sri lanka is right now we should be willing to accept any kind of money no i i think this is a very dangerous narrative to operate on because it's a, it's the same narrative that put us into this deep mess 
the the risk with this is the moment you give this kind of incentive to people you make it the you make it the practice right so and it's practice and it becomes a normalcy uh, if you want to attract further investment you have to give much more incentive you're already corrupt you're already giving underhand deals etc and at at one point it becomes even that is not enough to distinguish yourself from um other countries or whatever and then uh, then i mean at one but at what point you say okay this is enough this is why you shouldn't really resort to this kind of incentives and also what these kind of investors would do is that the moment that somebody else gives a better chance they'll take the money out and go there right so mm-hmm. so i would rather uh, as much as it may be a little difficult i would rather avoid it because such investments make an economy much more vulnerable mm-hmm. right and it's it's much more uh, uh, risky to attack such investments agreed and we also Agreed. have to remember that like these types of investments when they come in they're not necessarily like you know there are investments that come in demanding a huge amount of safety and assurances and uh, regulations their compliances their procedures to be followed that it's hard money to get but it's still better than getting a chunk of change with absolutely no regulations or impositions uh, of any kind because that also enables like if we if we've been looking at um you know corruption foreign money coming into the country what those things are spent on the types of projects that these things are spent on it enables that kind of playing fast and loose with the money even at a central bank even at treasury even at the highest levels of government and once that becomes a norm you really you really can't get it out of the political system you can't get it uh, umesh pointed out that you can't get it out of the economic system once that kind of the knock on effects of enabling certain people to act like they have financial superpowers is incredibly bad for a political for any kind of political system take for example this whole car permit thing or public servants or politicians you are doing a job i i get that the public servants are not paid enough i'm referring to the ones that are doing a administrative duty or the the ones who are qualified enough not the political appointees i understand that they are paid less so what needs to be done is increase their salary but instead what do we do we give permits we give permits uh, 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 duty free permits to doctors lecturers and other public servants now that is a really bad practice i i i don't know when this started but now it has become a normalcy which very difficult to deviate from this normalcy recently the you know the foreign employment minister saying that if you send money to sri lanka through official channels we will give you a duty free car permit to import a electric car i mean this is like you are rewarding for driving correctly on the road you are anyway supposed to send your money through official channels it's the basic thing to do and why do you need to incentivize people to do that so so this kind of bad practices we shouldn't uh, do because it sets a bad precedence may that be domestic or uh, foreign we have done enough and we shouldn't uh, do that again so umesh uh, i assume that even i mean even when you're having discussions with the imf there will be various sort of uh, compliance uh, 
features that will be built into any agreement uh, that you build with the IMF. And the IMF, I assume, would want to discourage these kinds of bad practices. Uh, now, previously, uh, prior to this, uh, to, prior to his policy statement on the 3rd of August, uh, President Ranil Wickremesinghe in, uh, in Kandy said that uh, they were expecting to reach a staff level agreement by August and that that was delayed due to uh, the protest. Uh, this was this claim had been repeated earlier by uh, the same minister, I think you referred to uh, uh, Minister Manushanani Akara, Minister of Foreign Employment and Labour. And we actually debunked that. We, uh, we fact-checked that statement and said, look, these are the things that need to happen in order for an executive board level agreement or a staff level agreement to be reached. But we were talking about realistic timelines, right? To reach like debt sustainable or let's say 100% uh, debt to GDP ratio by 2032, for example. Is this one and a half months for staff level agreement that the president is talking about a realistic goal? Well, uh, one and a half months, I would say it's fairly optimistic the fairly optimistic side um, but so I'll give an extra month more you know because there might be because we still don't know when the interim budget is gonna come when the tax laws are going to come so these things still gonna take time I I would like to assume that the debt sustainability plan is done I really like to think at least optimistically about it but in, in regarding the other two things, there, there's no signal as such when we don't know when the interim budget is coming or we don't know when the tax laws are. So this, uh, this was also something else that I was expecting from the president's, I mean, it's his inaugural policy statement to the third session of this parliament. I was expecting him to outline these particular plans, like, okay, how far along are you now with your debt restructuring negotiations, What, uh, how far along are you with uh, what's happening with uh, your IMF negotiations, where like realistic goals of like uh, what can be achieved in the next couple of months. Like he, there was a lot of wishy-washy stuff about everyone coming together and everyone working together to develop the country, some very lofty uh, visions that he spoke about. But in terms of the here and now, the current the, the crisis situation that we're facing, he didn't really uh, let out much or he played it pretty close to the chest with uh, what's going on. So, very true because, I mean, he he was the prime minister before. So all the all the planning was done under his guidance. So the IMF negotiations, he knew what's going to happen. He knew about the debt sustainability plan. He was the finance minister. So he knew that the, he was the one who was supposed to present the interim budget. Uh, same with the tax changes, it's his ministry those were implemented. So this shouldn't be a difficult thing for him, right? Because it's not, we are not having a new finance minister. He is still the finance minister. So it's it's about, it's a continuation. Right? So ideally, if you have a plan, if you think that you have to have a, you are going to have a staff level agreement in one and a half months, um, in your speech, you should be able to tell, okay, on this particular day, I will be, uh, present in the interim budget. I mean, at least if if he if he had uh, announced a date for the interim budget because he was supposed to present it anyway, uh, then we would have at least ex expect that okay we will be able to reach a staff level agreement in one and a half months, because interim budget, as we've repeatedly pointed out, is a key to reach a staff level agreement. 
and if we don't know when we are going to have an interim budget it's problematic when we say okay in another one and a half months we are going to have a staff level agreement so it's all are linked and it's as i said because he was the finance minister and he is the finance minister um, he could have easily mentioned that okay on this day uh, i'll be presenting the interim budget which is what usually happens in the sense that we know the budget date in advance right we we know i mean made that the interim budget or the budget that's you know presented in a normal circumstance uh, it's earlier announced that okay on this day the budget will be announced and these changes were happening for months now uh, although ranil may be in and out of the office there are people who are working on these changes so i don't think that it's it's very difficult to set out a date uh, to present the interim budget given that does uh, does the fact that none of this was sort of divulged in the policy statement or even in previous speeches that he's given the fact that he hasn't divulged this information when we're going to have the interim budget when does it worry you or does it con- give give this sort of feeling of concern that maybe they don't have a plan uh well i mean uh a certain degree yes um only thing that i was i'm somewhat optimistic is that they announced the tax changes so it's it seems that okay this is what's going to happen with taxes that idea is there but when that's going to come as a law again we don't know now these are the things that you can announce at this point this will become so that that clarity is not quite there i think this is why again we go back to the square one uh, why imf uh, why reaching imf staff level agreement is delayed it's not the protest or anything it's because um you still haven't presented the interim budget now if you are thinking that yes protest delayed everything protest lasted for about a week i mean the gota was chased out of the office and ranil was uh, appointed as the president this happened very quickly even if you take out a week or even 10 days still you should be able to have something on paper as uh, interim budget or at least uh, at least a date about announcing that which is which i don't see so that's that's somewhat concerning yeah so this is a popular piece of misinformation right we're seeing a lot of people saying oh because of the protests we can't uh, we haven't had imf negotiations we don't have stability etc etc and this is also an intentional push uh, this particular narrative being pushed by let's uh, say certain groups and that's simply not true uh, because these people seem to think that you know just because protests are there the imf people aren't going to have a meeting uh, it's not as simple as meeting for tea and saying amachang will you give us some money that's that's <laughs> yeah. not how any of this works and there. also there, yeah. there there seems to be another myth that saying ranil knows the language of imf i mean the ridiculous idea that ranil is the best person to negotiate with imf that ranil I, imf will give money because ranil is there there's that ridiculous idea as well which, which is also entirely uh not true the the imf is, is it doesn't care they're looking for a document that says look we will do x y and z and here's the math and here's exactly what we are going to do and we are going to carry it out regardless of who is in power 
that's what they're ideally looking for. They're not going to look at a guy and go, oh, his shoes are nice and his tie is nice. And he must have gone to St. Thomas or Royal so much and let's give him some money. The IMF, unlike Sri, most Sri Lankans, are not that stupid. It, it IMF deals with the state, not with the individual yeah. in power. So, exactly. Yeah. Talking about the protests, actually, just to wrap this up, because we've covered most of uh, what the president sort of laid out in terms of his economic uh, vision. I won't say plan because he didn't really articulate a plan. What he laid out was a vision, a lofty goal of where he wants Sri Lanka to be. But talking about the protest itself, uh, that brings us to, I mean, while all of this is going on, there is still what we discussed on the previous episode of The Doghouse, the crisis of legitimacy. Uh, and I mean, I guess even for the IMF, they'd want to deal with a legitimate entity and right now, one could sort of make the argument that the uh, the legislature and the executive are in violation of the people's sovereignty as enshrined in the constitution. True, and there is and there is the argument like there is the argument to be made that you need to have what people might consider legitimate. I mean, ideally, the whoever's giving us money, whoever's dealing with us, whether it's a creditor, debtor. Uh, the IMF bailout, whatever it is, they want to make sure that whoever signs that document can sign for the people of Sri Lanka and for Sri Lanka as a country and that they won't suddenly be replaced uh, 10 months down the line by the other bunch of people who come in and say, oh yeah, we don't care about any of that, you didn't sign with us. But again, uh, this, this is also not signed between people, it is signed by the IMF with a country. So at a certain level, once the, uh, you know, once the political games are done, these documents are signed, uh, it's a country that is going to have to pay that off. It's a country that's going to have to do that. Just like, you know, regardless of whether it's Gotabe or Ranil in power, we still owe the same people. Yeah. We still owe people the same amount of money that hasn't changed. So, so the reason the reason that I bring this up is because uh, I mean we were until sort of uh, November December of 2019 we were in an IMF program, and uh, when the government changed when Gotabe Rajapaksa became president back in 2019, one of the first things that he did was to withdraw from that IMF program. Okay. So Umesh, when you consider the fact that, okay, look. Uh, based on the fact that in his policy statement, the president made no mention whatsoever of elections or a timeline for elections. That indicates to me that he intends to serve out the entirety of the remainder of Gotabe Rajapaksa's term, which is till late 2024, which means that parliament also most probably will serve the full term, which ends in 2025. So do you feel that in the absence of sort of there being a, a, a legitimately elected government, uh, that that could put a spanner in the works when it comes to the IMF negotiations. Well, very much so, Nadim. I mean, uh, uh, not not for the IMF negotiations per se, but what we have to understand is the when when we have an IMF program, there'll be certain reforms that we'll have to do. Right? The, these are the reforms that we have postponed for decades. The the reforms that are not really popular. Uh, among Sri Lankan public and and it is carried out by a government that is clearly not legitimate I mean it's clear that any anyone can see that this government has lost the legitimacy 
right? It's it's not the 2019 anymore, right? You need to have an election as soon as possible. One reason why we couldn't have an election was because we can't uh, have an election during the middle of an IMF negotiation because we don't have a program. We have to wait till these things finalize. But once it is, it's very important that we have an election so that there's a bunch of new people comes to the parliament, right? So that people people have their say. And if people don't get to have their say, that means it's going to be very difficult, maybe even impossible to carry out certain reforms because these are inherently unpopular. And yeah, yeah, because, I mean, what if, you know, someone says, okay, we have to increase income taxes. And 10 months later, he's out and the public is like, oh, we don't like it. What are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, Yuda, if you really think about it, I mean, as... as... Uh, potentially far-fetched as it may seem in the car when you look at it currently let's say that the jvp spearheaded uh, npp comes into power at future elections uh, now this is a uh, we're talking about a party that is very anti-imf in their policies so what guarantee would the imf then have that this uh, group uh, that any potential future government would uh, continue on with the, with this program. I mean, not to pick a As... political side, but from what we've seen from the NPP and the JVP, their idea of economic policy largely seems to be wipes, just wipes. Um, I sort of had some respect uh, for, you know, people who would actually quote chapter and verse from Das Capital and say, this is why uh, capitalism is bad, this is why these hegemonies are bad, uh, the proletariat and the bourgeois and only the means of production, and they actually at least get the terminology right, but the current JVP and the NPP, I don't think they've even read that at least, so now they're just like wipes, uh, and that is extremely dangerous, because nobody will take you seriously, no, but like, you can buy a mare biscuit packet, uh, from Budalali for, but at the end of the day, you can't just wipes the guy. You have to still pay him for the damn thing. Right, uh, not, but no serious, yeah. nobody's going to do business with you. Yeah. Nadim, this, yeah, is, this is also why it's important to have elections so that people have mm. their say. So the NPPO, mm. anyone else, it's not only for NPP, anyone mm. else can come and say, look here, people don't like this. So let the people have their say. So whether, okay, whether people want an NPP government without an IMF program, let that be. I mean, it's it's the it's the choice. So give them that choice. You know, so the other parties yeah, can exactly. say, look here, we are going to IMF. This is our part's gonna be. We will have a full party. Because program. what I imagine, I imagine that, I, and I think one of the reasons that Sri Lanka has in 16 previous sort of IMF programs that we've gotten into, if I'm not mistaken, we've only ever completed an IMF program twice uh, and I think one of the reasons that we that we don't uh, sort of see them that we never saw any of those through to completion is that there's no buy-in from the public and I think this is where elections and a legitimate government becomes important is because whatever reforms that we agree to with the IMF are going to be very painful and it, without public buy-in, we're not going, we potentially won't complete this program either. Yes, I mean, in, in another two years, we'll have riots again, you'll have a, uh, people will ask to change the government again. We can't go on like this, right? So the better you have an election soon, and better the, the you know, all the parties say, okay, this is our plan. If NPP says that, okay, 
we don't want to deal with IMF or we have an alternative plan. Fine, outline, come contest. So then, then you have your say. Then the people have, all oh, okay, we are okay with it. Then there's, there's you know, uh, people's voice have been recognized. They, the, their voice will be represented in the parliament. Right now, it's not. Right, right, right now, it's a bunch of buffoons who were elected in 2019. Entirely different country. If you, if you, if you see 2019 and now you would think that are we living in the same country right so so actually they were the 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 parliament was elected in august 2020 yes yes shorter time frame frame, yes but i mean the circumstances are pretty much the same right Um, so that unless that there's sufficient legitimacy reforms going to be tough uh, and that's not fair and that's that's going to make things much more worse so so it's and people would think that okay, we don't want to have elections. We can go on, but but you're only making things worse, in my opinion. Uh, so Umesh Yuda, before we wrap up, a uh, quick uh, uh, sort of mention again also about uh, in the president's speech, one thing that he mentioned, and he's taken to uh, sort of taking pot shots at protesters in his public statements. He's now sort of referring to them as uh, fascist terrorists uh, and. Uh, extremists uh, which i found quite uh, he called extreme uh, elements because i found that quite funny because that was uh, a lot of the same terminology that gotabe pres- former president gotabe rajapaksa's media division used in the aftermath of the mirihana incident so it seems that political reconciliation is not high on the president's agenda here comes the new king same as the old king yeah. so <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, we'd all love to see an economic, a solid economic plan with details and specifics from the Rani Vikram Singh administration. We'd like to see that interim budget, as Umesh mentioned, we'd like to see the tax plans, the, the plans to raise revenue uh, so that, so I suppose citizens also want to see that so they can also plan their lives accordingly. And uh, the sooner he does that, the better. But on the political front, it seems like, uh, just as Yuda said, we're at a point where we were now saying uh, the old king is dead, long live the king. You know, I'm going to be a little bit more pessimistic because um, particularly based on the events of recent times, like when Umesh said we can't go on like this, we actually can. There is an interesting set of... um, loopholes that we've sort of been doing since 56 you know we rely on imports we have low production um we don't actually control a lot of the means of production for what one might think of as like a basic economy um and you sort of keep relying on handouts debt one revolution after the other and we've sort of been living this way for a long time i think we can actually keep going like never underestimate the Sri Lankan ability to cause a clusterfuck, but also somehow thrive in a clusterfuck situation. It's an interesting set of skills that we have as a nation. So I'm going to be pessimistic and say this could drag out for quite a long time if we aren't, if, as you say, uh, we don't have proper planning. And no, I, a I, clear I agree. I agree. I mean, I, if, you know, a couple of days ago when I was coming to Colombo, um, we don't literally don't have fuel and people have shifted to buses. Uh, people have somewhat found one way or the other to 
survive. This also means the survival of the fittest. You know, it's basic. Technically, we are going back in the in development, and this also forces um, skill migration. A lot of people to move out of the country, and then remaining ones to remain and somehow uh, live the life. You are absolutely right that we could. There is that possibility of going on <laughs> like this. Uh, but my my question is, what does it lead to? How long? And then further deterioration very, of uh, standards of I, living. I agree. I agree. It's a it's a very dreary existence. It's like eternally, you know, running in place just to, you know, just running as fast as you can just to stay in the same place. And that place is not a particularly good one. As as you know, a lot of people uh, that even among our community, even in our circles, people that we wanted to work with are, have already left or are in the process of leaving. And it's Sri Lanka is slowly turning into this country where those who can leave, leave. Um, and those who stay are sort of the extremely poor who can't afford to leave, to exit the system, or the extremely rich. Or the, for whom or the, the, or the ones who are extremely good at cut corners. All the ones who are very good at cutting corners and can somehow, you know, build a little empire among the ashes. And this is not a good system. Uh, this is sadly, I think, the holding pattern that we will be in for at, at least until 2032. Because we're seeing this in our own circles. People who uh, <laughs> can leave are going. People who can stay, who have some money enough to go, yeah, you know what, I can still survive here, are going, yeah, okay, I'll stay. Um, and then you have people at the very bottom of the ladder who don't have this choice at all. And they're going to be forced to live in extremely dreary circumstances, extremely torturous circumstances. And I fear this is going to be how things go for the next 10 years. All right. And on that note, uh, we hope we've <laughs> depressed you. We hope we've depressed you sufficiently uh, as we do on uh, the doghouse. Uh, Further reading on the economic crisis, uh, actually, if you want to see in detail the uh, the problems that uh, President Rani Vikramasinghe is referring to when he states the obvious in his policy statement and the solutions that we should be planning for, uh, please do visit our website longform.watchdog.team and uh, follow our extensive coverage on the economic crisis. We've got some uh, new pieces upcoming uh, in the economic series as well. So you find all of that on longform.watchdog.team. Don't forget to look us up on our socials. We're at Team Watchdog on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jitanja, uh, Umesh, thank you very much for being in the doghouse with me. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. Wow.